Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy Easter and Passover, Ramadan Kareem. Whatever you celebrate, I'm glad you're with me this morning. On today's program, I'll catch up with renowned multi-instrumentalist, singer, and composer Kishibashi to talk about his thought-provoking orchestral program that's coming to Chicago this week. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about Rivendell Theater's world premiere, Mother House. Later in the show, two local filmmakers will join me in studio to chat about their new holiday rom-com short. And I'll take you with me on my visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art for a closer look at the art of the Caribbean. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. An orchestral program making its Chicago premiere later this week shines light on a dark chapter of American history. Improvisations on EO9066 puts a spotlight on the incarceration of over 100,000 people of Japanese descent that took place in the aftermath of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. The program comes from acclaimed multi-instrumentalist, singer, and composer Karo Ishibashi, more commonly known as Kishibashi. He'll be performing improvisations of EO9066 with the Chicago Philharmonic at the Harris Theater on Saturday, April 15th. EO 9066 is a reference to President Franklin Roosevelt's executive order that authorized the relocation of all persons deemed a threat to national security. Over a period of six months in 1942, approximately 122,000 men, women, and children were forcibly moved to internment camps, which were located in remote areas in six western states in Arkansas. President Roosevelt suspended the executive order in December of 1944 because of a Supreme Court decision that stated the U.S. government couldn't continue to detain citizens loyal to America. Eventually, the detainees were released off into resettlement facilities, and the camps were shut down in 1946. I recently caught up with Kishibashi to talk about the evolution of this project that started in 2017. It was coming up on the uh, EO 9066. Was, uh, it was coming up on its 75th anniversary. I don't know. I was thinking about a lot of the kind of political turmoil, but also the racial tensions that were happening in this country. And initially, what had really triggered me into creating this piece was when the Muslim ban was trying to be, you know, enforced by the former administration. They're using this Japanese American incarceration as precedent for you know, excluding or incarcerating and profiling minorities. And so I think that was really a big moment for me where I really wanted to understand like why this kind of thing was even being mentioned. I was really shocked in, to find out that a lot of people really didn't know the extent of what had happened. I think for some of us, we learned about these Japanese incarceration camps in some history class we had along the way, though not a lot of time was, was really spent on it. So it's really something people likely have to kind of research on their own. Going into this project, how familiar were you with the details of what happened in the 40s under this executive order? It was something that was on my radar. You know, it's just a small paragraph in the chapter on World War II in, you know, your, your high school history textbook. And as a Japanese-American, you know, I was, I was kind of aware of it. I uh, hadn't really thought about it until it was literally brought up as, uh, you know, in the news. 
yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that if you don't really talk about it, it just gets forgotten. And then ultimately you'll just make, you're prone to make, making mistakes like that again. So you get this commission and you have this idea. And I read somewhere that then the next step in the creative process for you was you went traveling to some of the incarceration sites with a group of PhD students. So initially when I got commissioned for this piece, I, I took a two-week trip. I was lucky enough to take a two-week trip uh, with a group of PhD students. And we went to a lot of West Coast sites um, and museums, and we had basically daily discussions uh, you know, about racism and its history's implications. And part of the piece was for me, I, I wanted to perform music in these sites. And so that's where I filmed my violin improvisations. And later what became the piece is I took those violin improvisations and I orchestrated them. I would play what I felt, and then uh, and then I took those improvisations. And actually, part of the piece is I project those improvisations in the in the concert hall. So it's kind of the idea that the improvisations are from that location, and the music continues to live. So the orchestral piece debuted in 2018, and you'll be performing that here in Chicago this week. But the journey to make improvisations of EO9066 also led to some other projects, including a, a documentary and a studio album. Yeah, so uh, the studio album came first. It was supposed to be, uh, it was, I call it a song film, and basically it's, a, it's supposed to be a kind of a marriage between documentary filmmaking and, and songwriting. And so I wrote these songs. I put out an, uh, an album in 2019. Cause, um, and we just finished. I'm at, I'm at Skywalker Ranch right now, <laughs> like mixing oh, wow. our, yeah, our music into the, the film right now. And so, you know, like an album doesn't take six years to make. You know, so I, I, put, the, I put the album out in 2019. And we're just finishing up the documentary. And so the documentary is basically my journey of making the album and the songs and also about my own growth understanding myself like in this in this country as a musician and, and as a minority you're at the the skywalker ranch right now working on this documentary any idea when it might come out well we were acquired by uh i can't really tell you right now but uh, we got bought last year we released we actually released our movie last year at south by southwest um and then we got bought and then we we, had, we actually had to go back and re-edit it for several months and so we're, we're at the tail end and i think at the end of this year it'll be out like in a big way Okay. Bring it to Chicago. Yeah. Sure. Is some of the footage from that original trip you took with those students? Yeah. So the movie has a it chronicles like a lot of that that and the improvisations and yeah the initial trip is what what triggered this whole film. It was going to be a short film and then eventually I was just learning so much and traveling so much that it just turned into a feature length documentary. And I'm sure the the documentary and the the concert dive into this, but uh, since I have you here, what was that experience? of going to these former incarceration sites like for you? A lot of these incarceration sites are, uh, they're in very remote places. And some, sometimes it's really beautiful. Other times it's really desolate. And it's really how you mentally prepare um, that affects the way you, you feel. You know, if you imagine, I think if you think about the human beings that were there, then it's really impactful. If you just think of it as a, as a place, you know, it's just, uh, there's tons of places you know, in the world that can move you or not move you. But I think um, it's not just about those locations. It's really about the lives of the people, what they lived like before, 
what it was like during, and then even after. You know, we actually have in our film we have a segment about Chicago, because Chicago was the, the largest post-war resettlement community for the Japanese Americans. You know, there was like thirty thousand, forty thousand people that moved to Chicago straight from the camps as a way to like restart. Oh wow! Yeah, and so like it was a. There's a big story about that, um, and then there's and we'll emphasize that with our, our concert. We have a pre-concert talk. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm taking a closer look at Kishibashi's improvisations on EO9066, which he'll be performing with the Chicago Philharmonic on April 15th. I saw that he was performing at Tally Hall last April in 2022. This is Chicago Philharmonic Executive Director Terrell Johnson talking about how improvisations on EO9066 came to Chicago. So I, this is a great opportunity to bring uh, Scott Speck, who's our artistic director, along to the concert. So we went to the concert and had a great time and you know, went backstage to meet with Kay and just talk a little bit about the Philharmonic and how we wanted to find an opportunity to partner. And um, we got to talking about this concert and how this was something that's really important to him. And it was a really fantastic you know, message. It was something I thought was so important for people to keep and kind of the collective consciousness, like what happened to American citizens and in the 40s and how you know that had a huge impact on Japanese Americans. And, and so I thought it was something that was really profound and just artistically you know, spoke to me. The ideas explored in the program also mean a lot to Chicago Philharmonic violinist and board member Lori Ashikawa. When I heard about the program, I was excited because I, I have a special connection to it. And so I was so happy to be um, involved as a performer. The special connection Ashikawa refers to, it's especially close to home. My mother and her family lived in California. My mother was born in Oakland. She and her family were incarcerated because of Executive Order 9066 during World War II. And she spent three years in one of the camps, which was in Utah. And so growing up, I had heard a little bit about it, but it wasn't something that people talked about until um, the whole movement for reparations and redress came about in the 1980s. And after that, I learned a lot more about it. And I, I think it's really interesting because I've heard from interviews that Kishibashi has done um, about how he became interested in this period of history and why he wanted to explore it musically. And the other thing that he said was he wanted to connect what has happened historically at that time with what's going on in our country now. And I think it's really apropos because a lot of music does explore these historical and political periods that we have, even though we don't really think of music, especially classical music, as something that does that. I think it's interesting that Kishibashi is now bringing this piece to us in the United States when we're at this inflection point with how we treat people who are trying to immigrate to the country. And that's what happened with my mom's family. Although my mother was born in California and her family had already been in California for maybe um, almost 20 years before the war broke out. So they were well established as Californians. They had a business. And then with all the xenophobia and the fear, fear mongering around the war, they ended up having to leave their home and their their business and go into this incarceration camp in the desert for three years. 
Ashikawa says her family members never really spoke with her about their experiences in the incarceration camps. These days, she thinks about how her exposure to Japanese culture was muted for much of her childhood. One of the things I think is really interesting is growing up as a kid in California, you know, I, I took violin lessons, I learned violin, I was mostly exposed to Western music, and I actually didn't have any exposure to any Japanese culture until I was an adult. And I don't know if that was an intentional thing on my mom's part or just because she was so all-American. But I think people are trying so hard to assimilate and to prove that they are American, that a lot of the cultural things get left behind. And so, you know, when I first decided to play, to try to learn to play um, a Japanese instrument with the shamisen, I think that was a real um, kind of an eye-opener to me that there actually were a lot of interesting things about my, my culture and my heritage that I really should be exploring in addition to all all the other Western influences that I've had in my life growing up here. Kishibashi is hopeful audiences who come see improvisations on EO9066 come away with a better understanding of this dark chapter of American history. A lot of my, my piece is about resiliency, tomoyari, which is a Japanese word about compassion and empathy. It's to have the empathy to realize that these are just human beings and immigrants who are incarcerated. You know, immigrant, an entire immigrant community population was incarcerated indiscriminately. And so I think for me, like a lot of my songs are about love and loss and, and things like that. And they're real humanistic things. And so I like, I think I want people to be shocked, obviously, that this happened, but also kind of hopeful that we have the ability to resolve these conflicts and these problems that we have just through being, you know, empathetic and compassionate to each other. <laughs> Kishibashi and the Chicago Philharmonic will perform improvisations on EO9066 on Saturday, April 15th at the Harris Theater. There aren't many tickets left. If you're interested, go to chicagophilharmonic.org. Kishibashi is no stranger to Chicago. He's come here several times over the past decade. I asked him about some of his favorite Chicago memories. Let's see. I definitely have memories of drinking a lot of Malort. <laughs> which is really that comes up a lot, yeah. Apparently, it's, everybody's really proud of it. <laughs> uh, Chicagoans are definitely proud of it. But I don't know. I, I love Chicago. There's like a really vibrant like jazz history there, you know, which uh, which I've always enjoyed. Cause I'm, a, I'm a former jazz mu- recovering jazz musician. <laughs> I like that, and I, I really like the the heart of Chicagoans. When we made our documentary, you know, we 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 got a chance to meet a lot of people in the community. It's, it's just a cool, it's a cool, uh, cool city. So definitely looking forward to coming back. Maybe I'll drink some more. <laughs> I ask that question to a lot of musicians or artists, and yeah, the Malort comes up about half the time. I guess <laughs> it's really it's memorable. <laughs> you can't forget that shot of Malort. We're looking forward to having you back in town. Okay, thanks so much for making time to talk with us. Of course, thanks. Looking forward to it. That's Kishibashi. You can learn more about his music at kishibashi.com.
are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm now joined remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Great to have you back. It's been a while since the two of you have reviewed something from Rivendell Theater Ensemble. I was looking back. It was almost a year ago. Exactly a year ago, we talked about Spay in early April of last year. That was a world premiere, and so is Rivendell's latest production, Mother House. It comes from company ensemble member Tucky White. The play dives into various elements of grief as a young woman attempts to write a eulogy for her recently deceased mom, but with some humor involved. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What do we need to know going into Mother House? It's like road trips we, we uh, all of us sometimes take. The journey sometimes is more interesting than the final destination. And uh, I think that's a fair assessment of this world premiere by Tucky White. It's a complex and absolutely exhilarating exercise in family dynamics, and it's all squeezed into just 95 minutes. Um, as you said, uh, Gary, uh, there is a young adult woman, Annie. Her mother has died, and she invites her four aunts, her mother's sisters, to gather around the kitchen table and help her compose a eulogy for the for the funeral. Now, we never do learn very much about mom at all, except that she was quirky, but we learn a heck of a lot about her equally quirky younger sisters and the extended family dynamic that produced them all. Uh, at the very end, really in the last 10 minutes, there's a secret that is raised but not quite fully revealed which might explain a lot about what has been going on among the sisters uh, for years. Um, uh, it, it, it strikes me that the secret is something of an afterthought. It's, it's more a device to explain the fractious family dynamic, but it's not in itself a definitive or climactic event. So the point, as I see it, is not how Mother House ends, but the road we all traveled to get there. Carrie, what's your take? You know, it's funny, and this is maybe an offbeat observation to make, but it started out a little bit to me like a, a darker version of uh, The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood, if you're familiar with that 90s book. <laughs> and, you know, kind of quirky Southern women, although this this play by Tucky White is set in Cincinnati, where they're all just, they've all got these ticks and they, they kind of squabble. And then it gets progressively darker in a way that I thought was, was really interesting, and I agree with you, Jonathan. I'm not sure that there's a payoff per se with the narrative, but it is such a well-detailed, beautifully nuanced uh, piece of writing. And I think this is the first, not just a world premiere for Tucky White, but I think this is the first major play she's ever written. So that in itself, I think, is is quite an accomplishment. I think a recent, rather recent BFA graduate from DePaul. Um, And the performances are so... um, adroitly tied together that, yes, I think exhilarating is a really good word for it, although also disturbing. And one of the things I thought was sort of um, particularly adept is that there's little hints of things. We hear stories, because, of course, the whole point of getting everybody together is to get stories about mom that her daughter, Annie, can incorporate into the eulogy. Well, some of the stories, you know, some of them just seem a little, you know, a, a little maybe inappropriate. But then as they go on, we start seeing darker and darker hints that perhaps a mom certainly was not all she appeared to be. Certainly the home in which she grew up with her sisters had several dark secrets, and that that has perhaps permeated 
all of their lives to an extent that they don't even themselves really understand. Um, one of the sisters has apparently run off and joined the Church of Scientology. They don't mention it by name. It's pretty clear that's what they're talking about. I assume they just didn't want to get sued, and that's why it's not. So if they do get sued, and I said this, whoops, sorry. Uh, but I can assure you the name does not ever really appear. But, I mean, you know, that's what they're talking about. And you start thinking, well, maybe this woman is kind of the problem. You know, and I think that's the clever thing about this, Jonathan. I, I think you and I have probably seen a lot of these plays where it's a death in the family, people come together, Secrets are revealed. It's a fairly common dramatic device or trope. Um, but I felt it was handled in a little bit of a different way than I've seen other plays do it. And I think that's what held my interest pretty well, is that yeah. the character, you know, there's a point at which the aunt who's gone off to be a not-Scientologist, you think, oh, aha, perhaps she's the problem. Oh, wait, no, she's actually saying something that makes a lot of sense here. But wait, is she real? You know, so I think that's kind of the really intriguing and um, and and really adroit thing. I keep hitting on that word adroit because I think that's how it is. It's very beautifully yeah. wound together that you never quite know who am I supposed to be believing. You know, you, it kind of goes against you, the grain of wanting to pick out who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and they're not any good guys oh, or yeah, bad yeah. guys in this world. No, no absolutely. This is not a story about who's who's good, who's right, who's bad, wrong, yeah. or even right, or even who's right or wrong. Uh, like I said in my opening metaphor, the road trip. Is very exhilarating. It's a lot of fun. It's filled with little twists, little moments, little reveals, a lot of energy. It's a wonderful, energetic cast. And just maybe something slightly supernatural at moments. Uh, you know, that's open, that's a subject of interpretation. Sure. Uh, sometimes all five of the actors are speaking at the same time, and yet you hear each of them. Now, this is an extremely difficult writing challenge for the author, and it's equally challenging for the director and actors to achieve that on stage. So I have nothing but good things to say about Tucky White's script or the direction by Azara Kazemi or the robust acting by the cast, all of whom are longtime Rivendale ensemble members. Um, I think, Carrie, that you will agree that the showiest role goes to Megan Garakis <laughs> yes, as indeed Aunt Weezy. And Aunt Weezy is the first one to arrive, so we spend a little more time with her than the others. And uh, Megan Garakis delivers a really earthy, riotous performance. She's the bossy sibling, but also, mm-hmm. in a way, the odd woman out. The, the daughter, the young adult daughter, Annie, is played by Jessica Evans. She's the quietest character. And it's clear that she is unsure of herself, and I mean the character, not the actor. But she also persistently guides her aunts back to the never-accomplished task of creating the eulogy. Right. Uh, the other ensemble members are Mary Cross, Tara Mallon, and Jane Baxter-Miller. They're all just as good in their slightly smaller roles. It's really a treat to watch these five right. go at it. And, I, you know, one of the things I also appreciate, it's not just the big secrets or the, the, the really quirky or offbeat things. Some of the dynamics, and perhaps this is me speaking as, as the youngest sibling, uh, Tara Mallon plays the youngest sibling, Aunt Lizzie, and there's a routine, you know, recurring thing where they keep telling her, oh, you, you were too young, you don't remember that. She's like, wait, but I do remember it, but they just keep dismissing, no, no, you, you don't remember it, you don't remember it right. I think that's a really familiar dynamic. Aunt Lizzie is also the one who's trying to bring in all the food and trying to be the peacekeeper. You know, I think every family has that person who's like, when things are getting tense, you know, who wants a turkey sandwich? You know, we just eat the sandwich and everything will be just fine. So, you know, in the midst of all these, 
you know, hints of very disturbing things. There's also just that sort of everyday, uh, you know, dynamic between siblings that comes out perhaps even with more intensity when there is a death in the family. People sort of revert to type, and I think that's one of the things that Tucky White really understands and has done really well in the creation of these characters, along with, as you said, an absolutely stellar ensemble. I wanted to also uh, uh, cite the scenic design by Lauren M. Nichols. Mm -hmm. It's an attractive, upscale kitchen, uh, which would seem both familiar and appealing, but nothing special. And yet, in this particular case, it provides the play with an absolutely necessary realistic anchor, a table, a kitchen table that they can all gather around, and lots and lots of things to do as the women putter and fuss about, uh, you know, preparing and eating snacks and drinking wine. Now, the way the characters behave in the kitchen also underscores their personalities. Uh, Aunt Wheezy, for instance, very noticeably takes things out of one cupboard and nonchalantly puts them back in a different cupboard. (laughs) Right. uh, Like she owns the place. (laughs) Mother House is full of lovely little details like that, which helps make the play both complex and solid and, and interesting in the best sense, entertaining. So it sounds like two recommendations. I absolutely recommend it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the ending again, I think Jonathan is right on that. You know, the 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 destination may feel a little like, oh, what what just happened? What am I supposed to take away? But I honestly didn't mind that. I thought that uh, the getting there was, in fact, the point. All right, Rivendell Theater Ensemble's world premiere, Mother House, continues through May seventh. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're You're welcome, Gary. A unique speaker system is opening up new avenues for artists who work in sound. The one-of-a-kind 16-channel speaker system was created by the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater, also known as CLEAT. Oftentimes, multi-channel audio is the province of academic institutions. It's something that happens kind of in a more rarefied, more cloistered environment. This is Stefan Moore, a sound artist, professor at Northwestern University, and the creator of the Cleet speaker system. It has so much expressive potential. We're really interested with this system to have it exist outside of a university and outside of uh, a lot of kind of gatekeeping. And thanks to a partnership with Chicago-based Elastic Arts, the Cleet system is now accessible to a wider audience. The cutting-edge speakers reside at the Logan Square neighborhood venue, which presents a monthly Cleet listening and performance series. Artists working in sound are able to push boundaries even further thanks to the system's 16 omnidirectional hemisphere speakers. I recently caught up with Moore and one of the other Cleet co-founders and curators, Matt Tess, to learn more about the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater. The idea to create a multi-channel audio performance organization in the Chicago area was hatched around 2018. A few years back, uh, Matt and... Uh, Sam were uh, students of mine at Northwestern University in the Sound Arts and Industries master's program there. And Matt, in particular, had a real passion for electroacoustic music and multi-channel music and wrote a thesis paper talking about the potential for electronic sound and theater to connect with each other. 
we decided it would be really fun to be able to find ways to promote this uh, in the community directly because we did we saw a need for it and we didn't see other places where it was really happening. So for a little while, we tried to find our own space, uh, our own venue, and that that's turned out to be uh, overwhelming and difficult. And then we worked with uh, an organization called uh, the Prop Theater that did a, uh, was, was really wonderful, allowed us to do some programming and have uh, speakers in there for a while. But we were re- really looking for a more permanent home. So uh, Elastic Arts uh, was mentioned as a, as a possibility. We spoke to them and they've been such a wonderful and generous uh, home for the, the speakers to, to live in and for us to, you know, allowing us to offer programming there and invite artists in to come in and work with our system. The Cleat system was installed in late 2019, and the performance series was just getting started when the pandemic erupted. It was November 2019 that we installed the speakers there and um, got everything up and running and working. Uh, Our first concert with the speakers at Elastic was uh, late January of 2020. Uh, We also had a concert in February of 2020. Uh, and we were scheduled to have concerts in March, April, May, and June that were already lined up. And, uh, and then, of course, as we all know, in early March, uh, the world uh, changed a little bit. And so we've been waiting for our, our opportunity to reemerge like so many other arts organizations have. You might be wondering how a 16-channel speaker system works. Test and more explain. So it is 16 speakers arranged in a 4x4 grid hung in the ceiling. The speakers themselves look a little bit like they're a little UFO-esque. They're kind of these hemisphere speakers. They really kind of create an environment. So it's really something that you, that lets you kind of live inside the sound so if you can think of a grid above you as as sort of the the quadrants that you can move through with 16 speakers up there and not arranged in a normal surround sound system where they're just kind of in a line around you but uh kind of covering the whole ceiling it really gives you the chance to move sound around amidst the audience near and far there's about 10 feet between each speaker. So it kind of fills up the entirety of the Elastic Arts uh, uh, space, meaning that uh, as an artist, I can send sounds into any corner of the room. Uh, I can have the sounds kind of converging to a certain point or spreading out. And that whole dimension of of space and location with the sounds is really uh, uh, liberated in in an interesting way uh, uh, artistically, uh, which gives a dimension of freedom that artists don't normally get to work with when they're creating uh, electronic music. There are a number of strategies that different artists employ and and a a number of ways that people approach the space, like the ability to move sound quickly from different points into the space and really follow a single gesture or to really kind of create an immersive 
environment and really feel like it's all around you with subtle differences from if you would walk to this side of of the room you get kind of a different experience and different things are happening and then you move to the other side and it's an entirely different little scene we've had people make sonic haunted houses we've had people use it really in a a pointillist kind of way where you really have a symphony of 16 different speaker instruments that are all doing uh, their own thing. And then you really get to walk through it. It's like kind of uh, taking a tour right through the middle of an orchestra. So there really are a number of of different ways to to approach this kind of, of work that is really specific to having the system in place. Moore says each of the 16 channels is capable of disseminating different sounds. One of the things that's really unique about this system uh, is that uh, unlike a lot of surround sound kinds of systems, there is no sweet spot to it. There is no ideal place to sit. Because the speakers uh, are omnidirectional speakers, they send out sound in all directions. Uh, there is no bad seat. And if you asked uh, someone to point to where a sound is coming from, uh, no matter where they are, are in the room, they'd all be pointing to the same uh, point uh, on the ceiling. So you have this ability to work with space that feels very different from the normal kind of surround sound paradigm of, of trying to uh, create a convincing image that replaces the room you're in. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Stefan Moore and Matt Test, two of the founders of the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater. The organization, also known as CLEAT, is aiming to provide sound experiences that traditionally haven't been easily accessible. Multi-channel audio performance spaces are fairly rare outside of academic institutions. There are a number of places at, on university campuses uh, uh, throughout the world where you can go and work with an eight-speaker surround system, for example. But I can count on one hand the number of regular venues that have a multi-channel speaker system in them. There's a place called Envelope in San Francisco. There's a place called Black Hole in um, in Los Angeles. There's a, a place in New Jersey called the Honk Tweet, which is a reference to sort of a derogatory description of uh, electronic music. And then there's, there's this uh, situation uh, at Elastic. And if there are other ones out there, I'm not aware of them in the US. So that's, that's four of us. Um, and each of those systems is fairly uh, unique and individual uh, in terms of what it does. This is the only venue that I'm aware of that uses the kinds of hemisphere speakers that we have. It's a, uh, a speaker design that uh, I participated in creating along with a few other musicians and acousticians, uh, Curtis Bond, Dan Truman, Perry Cook, uh, came out of some research at Princeton University back in the late 90s. I started building these speakers uh, about 20 years ago now. And there's a whole separate business called Isabel Audio. Uh, They're often used for laptop orchestras, which is a kind of uh, ensemble that some universities uh, will will work with. A lot of people use them for their own personal kind of performance systems uh, or use them in sound installations. But in terms of having 16 of these speakers uh, in a system, this is the only place, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I can say with authority, this is the only place on earth where you can uh, work with these speakers in this way. 
That was Stephen Moore and Matt Test. They're the two co-founders of the Chicago Laboratory for Electroacoustic Theater, a.k.a. CLEAT. The Clear Listening and Performance Series continues at Elastic Arts on April 14th. Sound artist Billy Howard and Kieran Daly will be presenting work. You can find out more information about what's coming up by visiting elasticarts.org. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to WDCB. This is the Arts Section. A chance encounter on Twitter by two local filmmakers resulted in a new short film that will make its world premiere at the St. Charles-based After Image Film Festival later this week. The short, titled Paper Planes, stars Shana Shruton and Alyssa Thorderson as new neighbors who strike up a connection during the holiday season. Thorderson also wrote the script for the short and co-directed it with veteran filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith. I recently caught up with both of them to talk about how this short film came together and to get their thoughts on what makes for a good rom-com. I had just sort of wrapped up a festival run with my last short uh, that had been directed by Claire Cooney, who was actually who introduced Michael and I. Uh, and it had been a great run. It was really fun. And I was kind of like, well, what's, you know, what's the next thing? And I had been batting around a couple scripts and some feature ideas and nothing was really sticking. So I thought, well, it's December. I'm going to write Christmas rom-com just to like shake the cobwebs off. Like I just sat down and banged out a draft and a sort of as a joke, I posted on Twitter like, hey, who wants to make my cute Christmas short? Uh, and then here comes Michael Smith. Hey, will you actually send that to me? I'd, I'd like to read it. He read it very quickly, and then we had coffee to talk about it. And he had really just one or two notes that I agreed with, and everything just sort of, I think we had, by January 4th or 5th, we had our full crew in place, plus our location, plus our funding, and our lead actor, who is Shana Shruton. So we shot then January 29th, and did some, like, two hours of exteriors and pickups on the 30th, and that was it. I think Eric Marsh, who's our really brilliant ed- editor, the f- got us the first cut within a week. Yeah, about a week after we wrapped shooting, yeah. we had a rough cut, and then the three of us just refined it. So it really, we had a finished product within nine weeks, and then at the beginning of the 10th week, we had our first festival acceptance, <laughs> which we got within 45 minutes of submitting. Just for our... Listeners who aren't familiar with how filmmaking works, this whole process pretty unusual than the speed at which it... Extremely unusual. It, it came t- together in a way that was almost magical, I would say, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, it all started on Twitter. So what was your reaction when you first read Alyssa's script? First of all, I thought it was a beautiful script. Uh, the themes resonated with me. It kind of reminded me of something that I might write myself because it's a very character-driven piece. And um, and it's all about communication. You know, it's about connection. And um, that's, some, that's something that resonates with me. But then I also thought this is also something we can do easily. You know, we can do this quickly and cheaply. So as a filmmaker, I always have one eye towards the practical. And so when we met for coffee, I remember saying to you, um, I want to help you make this, but, you know, I'll tell you how I think we can do it. And you let me know if that sounds good to you. And one of the things I said is we need to do this next month. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure if that was going to be intimidating to you because I thought maybe you'll want to wait a little longer. And Well, it it was intimidating to me, but I think in a way that was 
exciting. The Alyssa Michael partnership worked on a number of levels, in part because they share similar thoughts about rom-coms and both have an affinity for a popular holiday film. Alyssa and I are both Love Actually super fans. Oh, so wow. okay. <laughs> I've actually gotten in fights with people over this movie. We, we had bonded over that, and that's a that's a holiday. That's mm-hmm. like the ultimate holiday rom com. And um, you know, we both think that that's a substantial film. Mm-hmm. And I think everything about dating and connecting romantically with someone is humiliating and awkward and embarrassing and tense. And there's, I think that's really funny <laughs> yeah. uh, because there's no, you're, you're going to have people who are just deeply uncomfortable and, and earnest in a way that's that's very sweet trying to connect with each other. This, the situational comedy of, of people like just fumbling f- to look cool or to look, you know, interesting. It made me think of something like When Harry Met Sally, which is a perfect film, I think, regardless of genre. But also is very funny because there aren't they're not setting up jokes you know you don't have a one you know a a one two three sort of like beat joke structure you just have people who are pretty awkward trying to amuse each other being angry with each other and trying to comfort each other in various ways throughout that film it's just about like the dumb ways that people try to connect with each other and how that ends up being so super sweet which and is which is intensely relatable. Yeah, right? I think you laugh because I feel like you, an awkward you, person. You recognize that it's true. Yeah. So you you have this appreciation for for love. Actually, I'm also a fan of that. So this could actually be one of the stories in a love actually mm-hmm. type of film. So Let's like write five more and, <laughs> and make, make the feature, feature version. <laughs> Not, we had kind of talked about that. Yeah. That was that was something that came up. But yeah, I think I think it has that sort of sentiment too. And what I what I think that love actually does really well is it doesn't give you too much information. You have just enough to care and then the actors will do the rest. And that's something that I really wanted to do with this film. Obviously our character is is dealing with what is a, a debilitating mental illness, but she's not pitiable. She's not like frumpy or washed up or someone that we feel, you know, bad for. She's a whole interesting, funny, warm, complex person who happens to have this like struggle that she wrestles with every single day. But we didn't feel the need to give her, like, an origin story for her trauma. That's not what the film is about. Also, we don't cure her (laughs) in the film, which is also not a spoiler. The point is not that somebody drops out of the sky and solves all of your problems. It's that you can take these little steps to connecting with people and find your way on your own. Traditionally, access to short films has been limited to festivals, but that's starting to change as distribution methods evolve. In the in the last couple of years, it's really changed a lot. Certainly, streaming has played a part in that. So you can pretty much, you can go to Prime, you can go to you know YouTube or or even Netflix sometimes, and there are just like shorts blocks that didn't used to exist. But also, you used to make a short sort of as a, a calling card. This is what I can do. Hire me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, This is a short version of what I'm capable of. And and I think the idea was to position yourself to then be able to make a feature. Maybe not that same story as a feature, but to make a feature because that's where the money is and the investors are and the audiences traditionally have been. But it's been interesting coming into this as a relatively new filmmaker. And my last film played over 20 festivals. We played some Oscar qualifiers and we saw so much great work, some that was like really big budget with celebrities and some that was 
you know, some kids literally made on their phone during quarantine. And you just don't see that kind of breadth of material, I think, in a traditional theater setting. So I wasn't necessarily prepared for what's going to happen when the the theatrical, the festival run is over. Is it going to have a life online somewhere? So who knows? I have I have no idea what to expect because there's this huge like Tubi now has a short film channel, Prime has several short film channels. Like the just the the landscape is evolving so quickly that I'm not necessarily even sure that I have kept up with it. And audiences will be able to check out the world premiere of Paper Planes on a big screen at the After Image Film Festival Saturday, April 15th and Sunday, April 16th. The fest takes place at the Charlestown Movie Theater in St. Charles. Go to afterimagefilmfestival.com for more info. And the film will be screamed at another local fest later this month. The one that we'll be doing in Chicago next is Cinema Femme Showcase at the Music Box. On Sunday night, April 30th, we are in the opening night's opening block, which is a huge deal and I feel very grateful. And also, like, I I used to drive in from Indiana to go to Midnight Rocky Horror at the Music Box when I was in high school. So watching my films <laughs> on the Music Box screen is, like, just an absolutely surreal out-of-body experience. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> That's Alyssa Thorderson. She's the writer, co-director, and co-star of the Chicago set short Paper Planes. We also heard from filmmaker Michael Glover-Smith. The film will be playing at various film festivals, including the After Image Film Festival in St. Charles. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. The Museum of Contemporary Art is offering a fresh perspective on Caribbean art with its recent exhibition, Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean, Diaspora, 1990s through today. The exhibit features works from a diverse group of 37 artists. MCA curator Carla Acevedo-Yates was interested in challenging conventional ideas about the region. I visited the museum and caught up with Acevedo-Yates to talk about her connection to the Caribbean diaspora. What was the starting point for what turned into forecast form? So it's actually a really long process. I was actually born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and um, very interested in group exhibitions that are showing artists from the Caribbean, both in the region and also in the United States and in Europe. So it's a process of a lot of uh, dialogues with artists, seeing exhibitions both in Puerto Rico, in the United States, in Spain, for example. So it's difficult to pinpoint where this show existed or where it started to come together. But I would say that after Hurricane Maria, the show really started to take its actual form, really thinking about the relationship between the diasporic communities and the Caribbean region. So Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico in the fall of 2017. What was it about that event that spurred the development of this project? I think it was the experience, a very personal experience of, of being here in the United States and having family down on the island and what that means to be in two places at once, to be here, but also to be there and to watch the news, the hurricane path or the track and the form that the hurricane takes, the circular form, and how it travels from West Africa to the Caribbean. So it's this like traveling form that impacts a whole region, both culturally, socially, politically. 
And um, there was an important conversation that I had with artist Deborah Jack, whose work you saw in the exhibition. That was also an important moment for me to really think about these ideas around form and history, because for her, the form of the hurricane itself and its trajectory as it travels from West Africa to the Caribbean and to the Americas is a manifestation of trauma from the transatlantic slave trade and that really made an impact on me because it's a way of the natural world or the environment to speak to ideas around colonialism, around racial violence and so on. So that, that together with a lot of personal experiences, research led to the form that the show actually took it had, I would say, different iterations throughout the years, but it ended up being something where I wanted diaspora to be a real focus. So as you can probably tell by the title, the show really is thinking about diaspora as a way to understand the Caribbean from a really broad perspective, but it's also a way to analyze artwork. So it's really working in, in different registers. Right. So as far as the, the different registers, the title of the exhibit automatically brought to mind weather for me, not knowing anything about forecast form. Uh, the word forecast uh, made me think of like weather events and you referenced Hurricane Maria. In a way, you're using weather occurrences in parallel with other historical events and developments that have taken place in the region. Yeah, so... The concept of weather is coming from a personal experience of both growing up with hurricanes as this phenomenon that you grow up in the Caribbean. It's something that you, every year you have to prepare for. So there's six months of hurricane season out of the year for in the Caribbean. It comes from the personal experience of being in the United States and seeing Hurricane Maria in particular in 2017. But it also is thinking about how you know the trade winds facilitated colonialism. So it's really weather as this way of understanding certain historical forces. So how not to separate the environment and certain natural phenomenons from history, from the historical forces that have shaped the modern world. Situated between North and South America, in the Caribbean Sea, the region is home to an eclectic array of cultures. Acevedo Yates wasn't interested in representing each and every Caribbean community. She's more interested in the constant changes and movement that exist in the region. So the unifying concept is diaspora. It can exist in the biography of the artist, but it can also exist in the work itself. So diaspora is a way to think about works through processes of exchange, movement, transformation, and dispersal. And one thing through my research that I found, so again, thinking about this 90s moment, was that when the Caribbean group exhibition emerged in the early 90s, there was a, a sense that the folks that were organizing those exhibitions, and to a certain extent that still happens today, there's an impulse to want to represent the region, which means like one artist or two from each island. So there's like an impulse to want to do that. And that's something that I really wanted to avoid. So sometimes people ask me like, oh, is there an artist from Venezuela? Is there an artist from San Bart's? So that's not what the show is trying to do because I think that representing the Caribbean is basically impossible. It's like a, a borderless geography. And that's kind of at the crux of the argument of the show. It's that representing the region or what the Caribbean is, is an impossibility. So one of the things that I really stress when I speak with people about the show, it's at a very subjective approach to the Caribbean. 
And um, some of these exhibitions that are major exhibitions on art in the Caribbean often try to um, be extremely didactic mm -hmm. and be very representational in the sense that every single language and ethnic region is represented or every colonial area is represented. And um, I think that sometimes the artwork gets lost along the way because there's more of a historical um, angle to the exhibition that is highlighted more so than the art object. So this is the, the type of exhibit that you could put in any museum around the world. Did you think at all about like local connections to the city of Chicago? Yeah, so one local connection is that the city was first settled by a Haitian man, Jean-Baptiste de Sable. So that's like the kind of Caribbean roots connection. Of course, um, Chicago is home to one of the largest Puerto Rican communities in the U.S. So there's that connection in the sense that always Chicago has been this place of migration and exchange and even if the show is about art in the Caribbean and, and thinking about ideas around the history of the Caribbean, colonialism, pre-capitalist societies, and so on, I think the show also appeals to um, you know, folks that have moved away from home, that um, find themselves migrating to a new place. So there's a lot about um, diaspora that relates to like, a larger human experience of, of migrating. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek, and I'm talking with MCA curator Carla Acevedo-Yates. We're talking about her new exhibit, Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s to Today. She says the 90s served more as a backdrop than a starting point. Actually, it's a way to think about group exhibitions and major exhibitions in general, sometimes when they have this retrospective look, they tend to do it through a particular decade or a starting point. So in, in this case, it would be the 90s to the present. But in this show in particular, the 90s is a moment to think about works that were done before and after the 90s. So I'm taking the 90s as a pivotal decade, both for the cultural context of the Caribbean. So it's the 90s was the decade of the Cancentennial, for example. So in 1992 in Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the region, there were a lot of cultural activities that happened around the so-called discovery of the Americas. So that brought about a type of you know cultural effervescence that was very problematic. So it's about the 90s um, era of identity politics, for example. It's an era where we saw the emergence of the Caribbean group exhibition as a way to make Caribbean art global, so to speak. But it was also, you know, a time where a lot of different things were coming together in the region. It was a very complex time culturally, both in the discourse, um, but also institutionally. So it's, it's looking at this era that really shaped artistic practice, but it's looking at artworks that were created before and using this 90s moment as a way to understand them today. A mix of paintings, sculptures, and video works create an immersive exhibit environment. Acevedo Yates was intentional in the mediums she chose for the exhibit. And I think that's part of my curatorial process. It's like not just hanging artworks on the wall. It's like how do you create an experience and that is manifested or created through 
the different types of mediums included. I did also hire an architectural firm from Panama City to work on the show. So we worked together to create these very um, minimal but powerful architectural interventions made out of plywood that exist both at the beginning and at the end of the show. But also through lighting. Lighting is very important to create an atmosphere to create an experience of the show. And as you walk through the exhibition, there are moments where the gallery is a little darker and there's more video or more sound. There, there are moments where it's a little lighter. There's a light sculpture that has a very particular glow that is reflected on some of the other works. So there's there are very intentional and deliberate gestures that come from a curatorial perspective to build an experience for the show. And I'm always saying that the show has a beginning and an end. And in that way, it's very narrative. I do come from a literature background as well as art history, so that for me is very important. But again, it's not just about hanging artworks on the wall individually. It's how all of these artworks are working together within this constellation of knowledge and of movement to create an experience for a visitor. Also of note, Forecast Form represents a significant development at the MCA as the institution transitions into a fully bilingual museum. The exhibit's written content and labels are all in English and Spanish. This is the second fully bilingual exhibition and the first major exhibition, and it marks the MCA's transition into a fully bilingual institution. And does that mean something to you on a personal level? It's very, very meaningful because since I started here at the 2019, it was really important for me to bring that into the institution, thinking about the demographics of Chicago, thinking about the growing Latinx demographics of this country. And of course, I'm a native Spanish speaker. So for me, that is a very important part of my work that I bring to the institution. That was Carla Acevedo Yates. She's the curator of the Museum of Contemporary Arts exhibit Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora, 1990s through today. The exhibit will be on display at the MCA for another two weeks through April 23rd. You can find out more at mcachicago.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Easter, if that's what you celebrate. Thanks for listening. (laughs)